From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Focused on the facts. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, maybe this is a reflection of the fact that I've just come back from the beach, come back from relaxing and realized that I had another hour to broadcast. And I just in that last three seconds of that first hour said that Dean's up next and I'll see you tomorrow. Mainly because Alex Zaharoff Royt on a Wednesday is always at the end of the program. And whenever I've said goodbye to Alex, I've said goodbye to everyone watching and listening. It's just like Pavlov's dog, you see? It's automatic. <laughs> I had to laugh. Maybe I am still on holidays. I, I don't think I am. But anyway, I'm back. Hour number two. We'll get to John Ruddick very, very shortly from the Libertarian Party in New South Wales. And we'll also catch up with Shane Healy, the former ADF intelligence officer, giving us a really good insight and update on what's happening in Gaza, but also what's happening right across the Middle East. This war is starting to move outside of the bounds of the Gaza Strip. South Africa's ex-Olympic runner Oscar Pistorius will face a ban on talking to the media when he is released on parole later this week, almost 11 years after he shot dead the, his girlfriend, Reba Steenkamp, prison authorities said Wednesday. Isn't it interesting? Um, the way they shut the mouths and rob someone like Oscar Pistorius of free speech, like as if it's some kind of penalty. Or is it because they don't want Oscar Pistorius to talk about how badly he was treated inside? I don't know what the answer is. I'm just surmising that this is why they've buttoned him up. A parole board reviewing whether Pistorius, age 37, was fit for social reintegration, decided at the end of November to allow him out of prison early on January 5. The Department of Correctional Services said in a statement, just like other parolees, Pistorius is restricted from conducting media interviews. Now, I understand why they would worry that someone like Oscar Pistorius would make money out of an interview, but robbing him of being able to talk about what he did. He might actually come out and say what he should have said many, many times. I am sorry to the family in a sincere fashion, not the way he did in court, which was only to try and influence the sentence he received. How about now that he served the sentence, he comes out and does it sincerely. That's what I would like to hear. Why shouldn't he be allowed to talk about the process he's been through and what he feels about the life of Reva Steenkamp. I don't get it. Um, the statement said, an elevated public profile linked to Pistorius does not make him different from other inmates nor warrant inconsistent treatment, whatever that means. The former athlete is due to be released on Friday from a prison on the outskirts of Pretoria, the time and other logistical details have not been disclosed as part of his parole until the end of his sentence in 2029, Pistorius must undergo therapy for anger and gender-based violence issues. There you go. He gets his freedom back. Reva Steenkamp will not be able to get that kind of freedom. You know, I loved really good stories about people who stick at something they love 
until their dying days. How's this story? How's this story? This is from the Epoch Times. To hear 92-year-old Bob Holder's secret to leading the good life, his saddle is nothing short of the fountain of youth. Yes, he's a cowboy. The famed Australian rodeo rider, mixing and mingling with young cowboys around the corral, keeps him forever sprightly beyond just mixing and mingling the... uh, the 92-year-old saddles up and competes riding and roping head-to-head with youngsters. Last November, he partook in the rodeo of his hometown, Kudamundra, where he has become a fixture with a corral recently named the Bob Holder Arena in his honour. How fantastic. For the rider from New South Wales, the event marked nearly 80 years competing in the sport. From the age of 14, he wanted to be a cowboy and nothing else. Mr. Holder told the Epoch Times, adding that his feeling is exactly the same today. 92 years of age. Can you believe that? And what an honour in his hometown to have a particular stadium named after him. That is a good news story. We want more of that, don't we? This is TNT. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, I might be back at work, but I know the politicians in New South Wales are not. Well, not strictly in the House. Leader of the New South Wales Libertarian Party and former Liberal Party member John Ruddick uh, is uh, an MLC. Now, he's technically still on leave, but I'm sure he's doing the work that he's supposed to do for the people of New South Wales. John Ruddick, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Chris Smith and all the listeners. Did you see it in in fine form, in in some kind of celebratory mode? Well, where I I live in uh, on the lower north shore, and I used to have the most fabulous view of the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, and then somebody built a big uh, forty story tower in front of it. But the Libertarians are pro development, Chris. So I am not going to complain about it. If you own private property, go and do what you want with it. Very well, very well done. Now, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have received mentions in these. Latest Epstein files. Uh, they didn't tell us too much. I spoke at length about the 180 documents with Lynn Shaw last hour on the program. What frustrates me is that we don't have a client list and that the videos are not released. Why the secrecy? Is it because too many in power, too many in influence uh, have either themselves under scrutiny or have friends and acquaintances that could come under scrutiny, do you think? Look, the Jeffrey Epstein situation is absolutely fascinating. Now, the guy, uh, look, I think I think we can say fairly uh, conclusively, he was an intelligence agency asset. That's what he was. This guy had enormous money. Okay, you know, you know, he had Chris. I, I recently read he had the biggest house in New York City. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people. Like people like Rupert Murdoch and stuff, they live in like uh, penthouses and stuff. But in terms of an actual physical house, he had the largest in Manhattan. It was like about a seven-story old Gothic thing, right in the most expensive area. Now the guy was a he he he, he was a school teacher for a little while in his early twenties. He got kicked out why? Because he's messing around with uh, you know teenage girls, of course. And then he's all of a sudden he 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 turns up. He, he's in New York and he's got unlimited money, and everyone wants to hang out with him. Okay. <laughs> But most of, and, and, and I do believe these allegations were saying it was about trying to get political people, very senior political people, very wealthy billionaires and stuff, Bill Gates and everything. He wanted to sort of entrap them. 
Yeah, mm. and, and, and so he's got pressure over now. Who was putting up him up to it? I don't know the answer to that. You know what? You know, in Australia, in the British, in the British system, we have the thing called royal commissions. Royal commissions sort of clear clear the air, get rid of all the other legal actions going on, and we have a very proper, thorough investigation into something. Now they don't have them in America, uh, but they should have the equivalent of a royal commission into everything to do with Jeffrey Epstein. But in terms of the Trump-Clinton uh, thing, look, Bill Clinton was mates with him. Bill Clinton was hanging out with him all the time. And you could imagine Bill Clinton like hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. They're peas in the same pot, aren't they? Yeah. Donald Trump met him once or twice. There's a few photos of him there. But Donald Trump kicked him out of Mar-a-Lago because he was being inappropriate with young girls. So there, there, is, there is no correlation between the very heavy, serious in very friendly in uh, manner, the relationship between Epstein and Bill Clinton, not between Trump. Yeah, um, this has got a lot more to play out. I can't believe that we've uh, waited around for four years and still haven't got the duck's guts in terms of evidence. Now, there are many ways in which people can develop a Trump derangement syndrome, um, and the Democrats keep finding new ways of doing so. The latest attempt by Democrats in Congress is this story that claims Trump continued to profit from foreign governments while he was U.S. president with four of his properties raking in almost eight million U.S. dollars, 12 million Australian dollars, most of which came from China. I don't get it. It's it, it, it's obviously aimed at uh, muddying the waters in this attack on Joe Biden and the investigation into his dealings with his son. But what is a president supposed to do when he becomes like shut down his previous life, shut down his 100 um, businesses and properties? What's he supposed to do? Well, Donald Trump, unlike 99% of politicians, has committed the terrible sin of being a highly successful person before they get into politics. Yes. And what did Trump do with all of his success? He was a magnificent property developer. All of his, everyone, even his critics, will you'll never hear his critics say, oh, his properties were garbage. No, everyone in the world knows that the Trump International Towers were the very best hotels in the world. He, he Him and his first wife, Ivanka, they loved luxury. They loved having the best, and that's what they were. So, he, so, so, poor, so Trump's built magnificent hotels all around the world, including in Washington, D.C., including in New York City. So when people from other foreign countries... China and Saudi Arabia, when they want to stay in Washington, for, for yeah, of course they want to go to Washington. It's the capital of the world. They want to stay in a hotel. They're not going to stay in the, in the street, are they, Chris Smith? Mm. And, they, and they're not going to stay in some cheap hotel. They probably want to stay at the best. Now, do you, do you really believe Trump's up there in the Oval Office and he's keeping a record of, oh, look, 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 all these Chinese people are staying at my hotel. I'll be nice to them. It's complete garbage. <laughs> So, so well, that, in, in some ways, John, it worked. It worked in reverse. Uh, there he was, his properties attracting Chinese uh, patronage, and he was rather nasty to the Chinese as soon as the pandemic started. Well, very good point. Exactly. Yes. Now, the the uh, I don't really don't think he cares one. But now he could have. People say, well, he could have sold the hotels. Well, I mean, there's capital gains tax. There's a lot of hassle. He probably likes his hotels. This is this is nothing. Now, of course, they they, they try to muddy the waters, as you say. Because on the other hand, you've got the Biden family, okay, who've never had a serious job in their life, never built a building in their life. They've just no. been 
I've just been, yeah, politicians, politicians, you know, and 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 Hunter and Brother James are out there, you know, doing deals with everybody, which it's all been documented now, making tens of millions of dollars out of just, you know, being a politician. Okay, being so a Biden, being a Biden, now it's so rotten. And he's Trump. Trump should be praised for building such magnificent hotels that people all around the world genuinely want to stay in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got some comments from you late last year, but this idea that a Colorado Supreme Court, then Maine and now apparently California, can somehow be judge and jury on Donald Trump's role on January 6, and therefore universally and wholesalely remove him from the ballot in those states is just so undemocratic I cannot think of another more undemocratic move by the judiciary. And I have this feeling, John, that as a result of what happened in Colorado, Americans will want to vote to get their democracy back. And even if they hate Donald Trump, they'll do so through voting for him. I agree entirely. If you look at the if we if you went back in time a year ago, uh, so to January 2023, Ron DeSantis has just come off a very good midterm election where he's won about 61% of the vote in Florida to make him governor, which is huge. And Donald Trump had had a bad midterm. Some of the candidates he endorsed didn't go so well. Yeah. So, so it wasn't looking that great, okay? And the polls, DeSantis, Trump was in front a year ago, but DeSantis was catching him, catching him. Mm-hmm. Now, then, now, now, now then what happened is they started out, 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 out unfolding all of these Legal actions against Trump. They don't stop, okay? And and I saw it on, on TV the other day. There's a direct link between it. As soon as they, like, um, yeah, charge or indict Trump with some other garbage thing, his polls go up. His polls go up. Now, what, what I had, as a Trump supporter, I had been worried that we're now, we're now less than two weeks away from Iowa and then New Hampshire. Mm. Now, so often what happens in uh, in Iowa, the first one is, they have some someone, someone's right out, whether it's the Democrat or the Republican primary, someone's way out in front, way out in front all the year before, and then just before Iowa, there's a stumble. So Hillary Clinton was going to win Iowa by a mile. Barack Obama comes in. And, you know, and 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 Joe Biden came third in, in, in Iowa. You know, he wasn't going good there. You know, he, he had a lot of stumbles. So people have these stumbles. You know, and even, even Donald Trump didn't win Iowa in uh, in um, 2016. Mm. Okay, Ted Cruz won it. So That's right. Funny things happen in Iowa, but what this thing with the kicking him off the ballot in Maine and Colorado and elsewhere, what it's done is it means that Trump is now going to absolutely smash through Iowa. He's going to kill it. It's mm-hmm. not even going to be close. It could have, if they hadn't have done this thing, it would have. There's enough Republican Party primary voters and caucus voters who are saying, look, I'm not thrilled with Trump, but I mean, gee, I do not want my country run by people who are just going to strike out, say, oh, no, no, the front runner can't run. So Trump's going to run away with the um, run away with the nomination. Exactly. Think, Don't meddle with our democracy. It could be over in like, uh, it could be over in like a month, Chris. I mean, he'll just smash, he'll blow it out of the park in Iowa. New Hampshire's looking a little bit tighter. Doesn't really matter. He's then going to go to South Carolina. He's going to get about 90% of the vote. It's going to be like a Kim Jong-un vote. So yeah. it'll all be over soon. Trump will be the nominee. Now, I, I still stand by what I said to you last time, Chris. I think they're going to put Michelle Obama in, mate. I really, at the last moment, I, they, they can't run by it. They just can't. Nothing, no nothing would surprise me with American politics. Let's take a quick break. I'll be back with you. I want to talk about the biggest losers 
from the Australian economy at the moment, and it seems to be middle Australia. John Ruddick, MLC, from the Libertarian Party, back with him in just a short moment on TNT. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, We've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media, like Telegram, who have reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. I'm just going to do a little I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. If you're still wearing a cloth or surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. John Ruddick, interesting. Um, Baby boomers who can afford to pay will be asked to contribute more to their own aged care costs under an anticipated shake-up of how both residential and home care are funded for older Australians. A federal government task force has advised aged care minister Annika Wells to means test aged care to improve equity and inject new funds into the system. Haven't baby boomers paid tax all their lives to enable some kind of support in their twilight years, John Ruddick? Well, look, I mean, firstly, look, the federal government spends $30 billion a year on aged care, and that's a big chunk of the budget, and that is expected to double in the next 10 years. Now, if we look at the big picture, that is a good thing, Okay, not 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 the spending, but the fact is people are living older. Okay, 
people, you know, back back in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, you know, people, if they got to the age of 30, they were considered to be an old codger. Okay, so, so society is on balance is going well. Okay, now, the federal government should not have anything to do with aged care. Okay, this should be at a minimum something run by the states. The states and territories can experiment, learn from each other, learn how to do it. Why? Safe. Why? Well, because, okay, okay, firstly, they can learn from each other. So Western Australia might come out with some policy, which is, which really is dynamic and makes things cheaper, better and efficient and the, old, the age custom, the age care people, people have it. Then the other states can copy from that. There can be tension. Secondly, Western Australia is very different to Tasmania and South Australia is very different to Queensland. So we need mm. that the local government sort of can understand the local nuances. Now, what's yep. happening at the moment is... A little, a little town in uh, New South Wales called Canberra is sitting there, you know, like the great central planners, and they're saying, oh, well, if you're in Broome in northwest Australia or you're in Burnie in Tasmania, we're going to tell you all the rules for the aged care. Now, I will, I will now give you, Chris, the libertarian ideal with aged care. The truth is the state shouldn't have anything to do with it. Now, what that would mean is we'd all have a lot lower taxes but if, if people grew up in a culture, when they were 18, they realised, you know, when I retire, at some point I'm going to retire, the government isn't going to help me. Now, if they had that mindset, if there just was not an option, they would think to themselves, wow, well, rather, going, ra rather than going to the pub for the fourth time in a row this week, I might put money aside for my future retirement savings. Yeah. Rather than going on another overseas holiday this year, I'll put money aside for my retirement savings. What's happening at the moment is we all have a culture, you know, spend, 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 spend. Don't put money aside. The government will look after me in the end. And when the government does something, it's really badly done. It's extremely inefficient. It's a massive waste of money. So, yes, the purest libertarian says is, uh, get the state out of aged care at a but, minimum. But 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 that but that is on the proviso that your average Australian does look after his or herself as they work through their working life and put money away. And we've got so many people who have to rely on the pension one hundred percent. Well, this is because we have not had a culture of self reliance. Yeah. Now it's just that we just we've always sort of walked around in the back of our head thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. The government will look after me in the end. I won't live I won't end up in the gutter. Yeah. Now, if under the purest libertarian laissez-faire approach, where the government's not going to have anything to do with it, most people are going to end up with a much more comfortable uh aged care retirement situation because they're going to have properly planned it themselves. No, the government's not now. What do we do about the five percent, ten percent of people who get to the age of 73? And they don't have any money. Well, well, I'll tell you what will happen then. You know, private welfare will come along and say, well, look, we don't want these old people out sleeping by the river uh, and we will look after the very small number of people that fall through the cracks. That would be the ideal aged care system, Chris. Yeah, yeah. One last point. Um, why is it that our governments treat people who work really hard, who battle in that middle zone of society and they just treat them so poorly. And we've got some modelling from the ANU out today that shows that middle Australia is working harder than ever, but they're earning less than what they did prior to the pandemic. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even a rate cut and a stage three tax relief this year, which is hopefully what will happen, um, 
won't change that status, apparently, according to this modelling. Maybe, I don't know, why, maybe we should be gravitating all towards welfare, John. Earn a bit of cash on the side, black cash part-time, and just be better off. Well, look, it is distressing, this report from the ANU, showing that they, they divided Australians into five categories. So you know, poor, sort of half poor, middle, half rich and rich. Okay, now what they said is, is that the, the rich are now richer than they were before COVID. The poor and the half poor are the same as they were before COVID, but it's the middle and the half rich which are suffering the most. Now, in the short term, that is because we've had that, that, it's that, that, those, that, those categories of people which have mortgages. Mm. Okay. Now, yeah. now, now, now we've had this unprecedented number of rate rises I think there's some very good news uh, coming our way in 2024. Do you? That's uh, good. Keep I, talking that way. I like it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, look, look. The, the US has all but said there's going to be three rate cuts, and we basically follow. We usually, we usually about three or four months behind the US on the rate side, uh, except when we're under a Labor government, John. Ah, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> look, um, look, look. We've got a fairly globalized economy these days. Look, look. I don't think. Well. I think they, we, they, they had to put the rates up because we had all this inflation. Now, we had the inflation because of stupid COVID, the overreaction to COVID. But anyway, the good news is we do seem to be seem to be getting the inflation genie back in the box. So it's actually, you know, and, and, and we will have we will have these stage three tax cuts. Albo, you know, I know his lefty mates have been saying, you've got to pull out of these stage three tax cuts. Yeah. But Albo's been around long enough. He remembers when Keating did that after the 93 election. Remember the LA law tax cuts? That's right. That's right. And then and then Keating reneged on the LA law tax cuts and then his yeah. polling just fell off a cliff. Yeah. Albo's been around the block and he knows, well, no, no, we're going to have these stage three tax cuts. Thank you very much. So it actually, Albo had a bad 2023. 2024, you know, he's got interest rates coming down. He's got the tax cuts coming in. Okay. But I mean, did you see he's talking about having four-year parliamentary terms? Okay. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he's going to require another referendum, okay? That, oh, no. He, he, he hasn't, is he that dumb? And Bob Hawke tried this in 1988. Now, Bob Hawke's a bit more popular than Albo. Bob yeah. Hawke, about 70% of Australians voted no. So, yeah, bring it on, Albo. You want another referendum? Uh, it'll be a disaster just like The Voice was. Of course. It'll be a disaster. Well, I hope we have a better year, but I have a feeling this could be a monster of a news year. I just think the way things are shaping with wars, economies, elections, it'll be a big year. And I'm so glad we've got you on the program, John Ruddick. Thank you. We'll sort out all the world's problems every Friday afternoon, Chris, on TNT. Easily done. So that gives us a really good weekend, you see, when we've sorted out the world's problems. We understand that. Love it. Nothing else to worry about. Exactly. Thank you, mate. Much appreciated. All the very best for the year. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Uh, New South Wales MLC, John Ruddick, leader of the New South Wales Libertarian Party, former Liberal Party member who wrote the book, Make the Liberal Party Great Again. But of course, it's a long way from being great, as we all know. Got to get to some news. And then we'll catch up with Shane Healy and talk a little bit about Gaza and the Middle East. But news is first. It takes priority right here at TNT. Now, TNT Radio News. It's hot, T. It's very hot. It's hot news. So hot. Yeah, it's hot news. Hot news. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. The US is now accusing Russia of teaming up with North Korea, claiming the two countries are now arming each other. 
A 17-year-old boy has gone on a shooting rampage at a high school in the US. A second batch of previously sealed court documents pertaining to dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein have been released. And the number of people missing in Japan following New Year's Day's devastating earthquake has jumped to 242, while the official death toll nears 100. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Now, I don't know whether you know too much about Jimmy Reese, who is a comedian in Australia, but he's fantastic and he's one of my favourites. Well, he's put out something related to the explosion in the number of people who have arrived in Sydney in the last 12 months as asylum seekers. They're all coming by plane, you see, although a few more are coming by leaky boat. Uh, but he's done a very good job. And I'll get to that before the end of the program. So don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. So this Israel-Hamas conflict, it is starting to spill out in other areas of the Middle East, as we all know. The IDF, um, of course, took out the terror group's deputy leader with a drone attack in Beirut earlier this week. The latest battle has occurred in the occupied West Bank overnight. And who knows where else Israel will find other Hamas leaders in an effort to take them out. It could be places like London. It could be the United States. Who knows? To unpack where this is all up to, I'll defer, as I normally do, to former military intelligence officer Shane Healy. Now, Shane enlisted in the Australian Army in 1995. Between 2004 and 2008, he was a private military contractor in Iraq where he trained Iraqi Special Operations Police. Shane re-enlisted in 2009 as a member of the Australian Intelligence Corps, and he was deployed twice to Afghanistan. Back in Australia, he was part of the Tactical Assault Group, where he was involved in several real-time terrorist incidents. Shane Healy, welcome back to TNT, and Happy New Year to you, sir. Yeah, Happy New Year, Chris. How are you going? I'm very, very well. I don't see too much change in... These uh, war fronts in 2024, especially in the first part of it. But I want to talk about what we know has occurred in the last 24 hours. More military action by Israel outside of Gaza. Overnight, the focus was on the occupied West Bank, including in uh, Beit Rima, northwest of Ramallah, where a Palestinian has been killed and at least seven more injured by Israeli fire. In the city of Hebron, Al Jazeera is reporting that there have been confrontations after Israeli troops fired tear gas at a memorial held for assassinated Hamas deputy leader Saleh al-Aruri. Now, that sounds to me like as if they're poking the bear. Is it standard warfare to aggravate the enemy soon after a hit on a key leader? So it is for the Israelis, and we've discussed this uh, at the end of last year, they always go on the offensive. They're very offensive-minded. They've been conducting those clearing operations in the West Bank now for about a week, going into some um, humanitarian camps, going through houses, um, ransacking houses, pushing, in their view, pushing the enemy back away from the Israeli border. So it's quite common for Israel to do this. I can only imagine the fury, though, from those who were in this commemoration for this uh, deputy leader of Hamas uh, who are subject uh, to an attack again. It is really, really poking the bear. And, you know, uh, you talk about revenge attacks. Um, There is nothing more that would motivate you than an attack on a ceremony. Yeah, that's correct. And... 
We, we spoke about it last year and we'll see it more. It just brings those Hezbollah, Hamas, those external factions together and it, it enlarges the conflict. So why the outside world are trying to de-escalate, Israel are escalating and going on the front foot and um, they've done this before, you know, uh, Mossad are very good at it. They'll go global to take out uh, whoever they see and, and they've already come out and said that they're going to hunt down every member of Hamas that was uh, in, the, in the 7th of October attack. So I think we're going to keep seeing this as the weeks go on, Chris. So do you think Mossad, the Mossad will go to places like London, parts of Europe, and track down where some of these Hamas leaders and some of these soldiers could be? Because they're not, you know, most of them are still not in the Gaza. No, and um, we've seen that before. There's that famous Eric Banner movie uh, about this very thing after the Munich attack. Uh, it's what Mossad are trained uh, and what they do. They are foreign, uh, Israel's foreign arm to go over and conduct those operations, and they've done it before, and the, the leader of, Hamas, of Mossad has already come out and said that they're going to do it again. That was a hell of a movie too, by the way. Now, Al Jazeera is reporting that Israeli cabinet meetings have become shouting matches. It claims that ultra-nationalist minister Itamar Ben-Gir was reportedly screaming at the Army Chief of Staff over the probe into what happened on October 7. Um, some ministers were yelling as well to stop the probe because it was taking away from the focus that's required on the actual war front. It sounds like Israel's security failures might be worse than first thought. And, you know, does it make sense that Israel would be imploding like this at that kind of high level? So I wouldn't say they're imploding. And, and this, is, again, is it's very... Uh, ben Gore is also the National Security Minister. So he's got a number of things on his plate, keeping the Israelis uh, safe. One of the things they were arguing about was some Israeli soldiers film were filming themselves singing over a loud hailer in a mosque in Gaza. And, again, you know, that's just more poking of the bear. And if any other army did that, that's humanitarian war crimes. And we're seeing, like, the South Africans have already formally uh, gone to the International Criminal Court to lay charges. And, and that was one of the other reasons that they're having these arguments. There's that uh, more restrained part of the Israeli parliament that are saying we've got to fight these lawfully and conventionally and we've got to kind of put a leash on some of our soldiers' activities. Yeah, it, you know, the, the layperson would see a political administration very much in line with its military force, but quite often there is a huge gulf between a nation's military force and the administration, right? Um, yeah, normally, but when we deal with Israel, you know, and, and I had the uh, privilege of uh, working over there in 05 with some of the Israeli forces, they view it that the Arab world want to push them into the sea. So they constantly view themselves as they're outnumbered and they're at constant war. So they always have a very aggressive mindset and there's certain members within their cabinet uh, that are even more aggressive. And, and to them, they view it as survival. So when you put it in that context, uh, you can kind of understand why things might get a bit heated. But at the same time, you know, soldiers singing in a mosque and, and egging the... Um, opposition on or the global community on isn't going to help anyone's cause in the long run no it's not too smart what about the hooties they seem to be unrelenting but i noticed that the coalition that's been forced uh, that's been formed in the red sea 
uh, is starting to give their final warnings to the uh, rebel forces. Where does Iran sit with this? And could it trigger even further warfare between the US and Iran? Well, so there is reporting that the Iranians are going to send a warship to the area. That is a massive escalation if that does uh, occur. Um, the the biggest one of the biggest issues is uh, it's costing an extra million dollars a day per ship and an extra ten days to sail around and not go through the Red Sea. So some of the countries economically are going to want to stop this, and it's having that effect at that geopolitical level. And again, it's just a run. Um, you know, we, we spoke about this before, escalating the conflict outside of Israel and having more and more countries putting more pressure in the international community, in the UN, on Israel to stop this campaign. How threatening, though, can Iran be to coalition forces? Like, how many warships do they have? No, and we spoke about this uh, last year. If the US wanted to end this, they can really ramp up. You know, they yeah. can move an aircraft carrier in there, a few frigates, some tomahawks, some ground strikes. They can end this, really escalate militarily. They're very good at it, and they can end this pretty quickly. But do they want to essentially re-engage at a overt level into that area? Yeah. I want to talk about uh, the convicted terrorist Abdul Ben Bricker, who's been released from jail in Australia. Um, he has spoken out for the first time since his prison release. Uh, the freed radical Muslim cleric spoke publicly and tried to reassure us that he's no longer a threat. That was what you were implying when we last spoke late last year. What have you heard about how much of a threat he's considered to be and has he been genuinely de-radicalised? So there's no – I'm not a big fan of the term de-radicalised. It's, it's about – uh, de-escalation of their intent for violence. He doesn't have that. We spoke about this last year, and, and I've got a lot of inside knowledge into his uh, rehabilitation. As I said last year, his main motivation now is an old man who just wants to see his family. You know, he's for the last 20 years, he could only see his daughter through a veil. Now he wants to be home, help his family get raised and assimilate. He doesn't have the influential power uh, that he had 20 years ago in that Sunni Salafi violent community. Um, so he will get monitored. He is going through some rehabilitation and intervention programs as monitored and uh, ordered by the court. Uh, there will be some reporting requirements, but he's not in the same uh, mindset uh, either of his uh, ideological beliefs and just he's an old man now. So um, if I was to give him a, a score out of 10 from where he was when he got arrested, he would have been an eight. If I had to score it now, it'd be about a three. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's not okay. trying to um, uh, push that violent ideology across onto a group of young men anymore. Okay. Let's let's just look globally and look at the year ahead, 2024. How do you see things progressing or de-escalating in the Middle East in 2024? And does the rest of the world have any fear about they too becoming, you know, territory used for the conflict? So I think one of the key drivers will be uh, the US elections. 
And we're already seeing that Joe Biden is being seen as not a, um, a not a powerful leader. And if those polls keep uh, going, he's going to have to make some decisions to look more authoritarian as the US president and the leader of the free world. That might force uh, the US military to engage a bit more in the Middle East. Right. So therefore, that I think in some ways that's a good thing. Um, so I think that'll be the driver for a lot of the US action. Uh, the UK will fend off that. But I was reading a report last night. There's 40 elections globally this year, like the US, uh, Belgium, UK. Um, UK. Yeah, so a lot of what's going to happen geopolitically in, in globally is going to have a, an effect on those elections, which way the countries are voting, uh, what what incoming uh, governments are going to do. So I think a lot of it will determine watch the polls and we'll get a better indication mid-year. Um, but I don't think the Middle East, I think it's going to ramp up. ISIS are regrouping. This Gaza war is not going to go anywhere because Israel is going to keep doing it, as we've discussed. Hezbollah, Iran will get more active. Um, so I think that'll be the, the global fiction point. We've still got the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, you know, Ukraine are kind of on a little bit of the back foot financially now. So we've got a lot of those friction points. And at the same time, unfortunately, we've got a lot of governments that will go into caretaker mode while elections are under undertaken. As you know only too well, um, war and politics usually go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, it was, I, I got a first-hand glimpse when I was in Iraq in 2004. Um, I was there for the election uh, of... Bush and Kerry and, uh, you know, I didn't understand at that point what political appointments were and Kerry was leading about two weeks out and a lot of the State Department were Republicans and they were essentially getting ready to pack up and, and walk because Kerry said he was going to end the war. Then Osama bin Laden came out and made a statement saying that he's going to continue to attack America. George Bush wins the election two years later and we have another 10 years of war. So yes. that, that, that's what I'm saying about how, an election can affect which way a conflict goes. That will be the pattern, no doubt, for 2024. Shane Healy, great to have you on the program once again. Enjoy your weekend and thank you for your time. Anytime, Chris. Thank you. Great stuff. Former ADF intelligence officer Shane Healy, who um, I prefer to get on on Friday just to unpack the week that was in terms of the Middle East and uh, looking ahead at what may eventuate. But a little bit of a map from Shane about what the year entails and, of course, once again, politics and political influence and war go hand in hand, very much so. If you'd like to comment, you can comment on absolutely anything. You can set the agenda. We've got some time to do it now. You can call in from the US or Canada on 1-888-201-6425. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, you can call us on 1-800-670-310. I'd love to have a chat with you. And don't forget that Jimmy Reese skit coming up right after this break on today's News Talk TNT. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're travelling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. 1. Check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. 2. Think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. 
How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. 3. It's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. She was reading at a second grade level in kindergarten. Pod four swimming before she was seven. Finally convinced mom to get her ears pierced in the third grade. Came in second at her fifth grade spelling bee. Drill team in the seventh. And with one stroke of the keyboard. One click of the mouse. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Report a cyber tip today. You're with Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. We were speaking a lot earlier on the program about the many ways that those with Trump derangement syndrome go about trying to wipe him out, to try and take him out, to try and take him down. They're obsessed by it. And the ways in which they use or create to take him out are just endless. They have been endless. Um, and we know what's happened in Colorado, what's happened in Maine, taking Trump off the ballot entirely. Uh, and then I read this today on the Epoch Times. There are attempts in California already to take him off the register. Have a listen to this. A federal judge in California on January the 3rd dismissed a lawsuit that sought to keep former President Donald Trump off the 2024 Republican primary ballot in that state. So there was someone that actually had the temerity to go to the court and say, please adjudicate on his role in the insurrection and wipe him out of any further politicking. How dare they? How dare they stoop so low as to besmirch the integrity of democracy? That's what, the, that's what this is about. That's exactly what this is about. District Judge David Carter, thank goodness for him, granted a motion to dismiss the lawsuit with prejudice, which means that he can't be submitted to the same court again, according to court papers. Now, a plaintiff attempted to argue that they suffered emotional injury as a result of the breach of the US Capitol on January the 6th, 2021, while watching the events unfold on television. They're not even a stakeholder. They were upset when they watched it on television and heard it on the radio and various publications. They then argued that the incident caused them severe emotional distress and then filed a lawsuit to keep the former president off California's ballot. However, the judge wrote that because the events occurred more than two years before the plaintiff filed suit, it was outside the two-year statute of limitation. So they got it all wrong legally anyway. The decision by Judge Carter, a Clinton-appointed jurist, by the way, who has ruled against President Trump in a separate case, was posted online by former Republican National Committee for California Chair Harmeet Dillon. There you go. The remnants of the last California case to keep President Trump off the ballot here were dismissed today by Judge David O. Carter, he said on X. Gee, they'll try anything, won't they? 
absolutely anything. Now, this is something very Sydney, but if you live in the United States or you live in parts of the UK or Europe, you will probably be able to understand fully what this is all about. As we discussed with Jim Ball on the program yesterday, new immigration data shows that Sydney was where the highest number of asylum seekers arrived in Australia in 2023. Almost all those claiming protection and residency in Australia are arriving by plane at Sydney Airport and overstaying on their tourist or business visas. In fact, the number of claimants under the current government has reached 2,000 per month. That is a record high. But as comedian Jimmy Reese has pointed out this week, those tens of thousands of new Sydney siders will need to understand the city's unique culture to survive. It sounds like Jimmy has started up his own immigration agency to ensure that these asylum seekers know all about Sydney's special rules. Oh, hi. Just uh, looking to get into Sydney, thanks. Okay, take a seat. We'll just run through these questions and you'll be off to Sydney in no time. Where would you never see a Sydney cider? Uh, the other side of the bridge they currently live on. Correct. And what are Sydney ciders most afraid of? The other side of the bridge they currently live on. Correct. What subscriptions do Sydney ciders have? Netflix, Stan, Binge, Disney and the M2 Tolls. Correct. What is the most listened to radio in Sydney? Radio messages in the M5 tunnel. Correct. Which is further away from the city? Penrith or the moon? Penrith. Correct. Where do you go to look at the most interesting animals in Sydney? Bondi. Correct. What would Sydney's autobiography be entitled? Entitled. Correct. What is the name of the structure Sydney ciders climb to be above everyone else? The corporate ladder. Correct. Melbourne has overpriced bars you can't find. What does Sydney have? Overpriced bars you can find. Correct. Where in Sydney would you find the most plastic? Oh, Madame Tussauds. No, no. Double Bay. Correct. Where is Sydney's largest escape room? The Bondi Junction car park? Absolutely correct. The roads in Sydney were inspired by which famous game? Snakes and Ladders. Correct. Pepsi comes in glass bottles, Coke comes in bags. Correct. What is the uniform worn on the northern beaches? Gym clothes. Correct. And where are they never seen? The gym. Correct. What notice board would you find Sydney's most wanted? The back page of the newspaper. Correct. When is the only time of year rich people leave Sydney Harbour? The Sydney to Hobart boat race. Correct. And where in Sydney is the biggest infestation of cockroaches? Six Macquarie Street. And what's that called? Parliament House. Correct. Queensland has the big pineapple. Sydney has the big debt. Correct. Recently, Sydney's economy was boosted by what? Only fans. Correct. Sydney's number one import is? Backpackers. Correct. And number one export? Broke backpackers. Correct. What costs more than a ticket to a show at the Opera House? One drink at the Opera Bar. Correct. Sydney was founded as a prison. What has changed? Nothing? Correct. What would you find at Paddy's Markets? Pickpockets. Correct. Where is the most likely place a Sydney private schoolboy will get in trouble? Private messages. Correct. Melbourne has killer coffee. Sydney has Ivan Malat. Correct. How do Sydney ciders deal with the ever-growing cost of living? Prosecco. And how do they deal with the traffic jams? Prosecco. Correct. And if they have to go to the Shire? Prosecco. Correct. Complete this sentence. A Prosecco a day keeps the thoughts of crippling debt away? Correct. If you're sent to jail in in Sydney, you're sent to Wollongong. Correct. And if you're granted parole, you're sent to Gosford. What's the difference between Sydney Olympic Park and a piece of <laughs> nothing? 
That is correct. What happens to an investment banker when they commit a financial crime? They get promoted. Correct. What's the average income in Sydney? 12 credit cards. Correct. How much do you earn a month? 20,000. Correct. How much do you pay in tolls a month? 20,000. Correct. Almost there. How long is an apprenticeship in Sydney? Four years. Correct. And how long does it take you to get to work? Four years. Correct. And finally, what's the main reason you want to live in Sydney? I want to go to the opening of every new restaurant and then never go there again. Top answer. Top answer. Well, you've done it. You have passed the test. You are sentenced to 12 years. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, the, the train leaves in 24 minutes past its scheduled time. Oh, thanks. I'm going to live on the other side of the bridge to you, so I'll never see you in my life again. Bye. Okay, go yourself. <laughs> There's a lot of Sydneyisms in that, but 85% of it can be applied to most, you know, major cities in the world. <laughs> like, that is very funny, where people pretend they can keep up with the Joneses in a major city in modern life, but at the end of the day, they're just in dirty debt and they can't possibly get ahead, but they can make it look like they, they're someone. They can make it look like they can afford stuff. Fantastic. Jimmy Reese. You can see that uh, he, he, he releases all of this on his platforms, but it's fantastic. Just a little bit of feedback from various social media sites and, of course, uh, TNT sites as well. I got a wonderful email over the Christmas break from one of our listeners, Beryl, from Mount Waverley. Hello, Beryl. I'm glad you're watching and listening. Uh, lovely to have you back and rejoining your usual place. Hopefully an enjoyable and inspiring year and years to come. Thank you for your great show. Only the best and the best only BB. Thank you, Beryl. That is a beautiful, beautiful note. I appreciate that. Um, another one here from Peter. Peter says, um, I've read all about your journey, your journey also. I congratulate you on your courage to get help to deal with your past. There are very few people who do not experience trauma in life. Those that tell me that they have not experienced trauma, my question to them is, do you remember your birth? <laughs> May your radio program go well uh, in your position when you're revealing many, many truths. That's what we do here at TNT. We try and uncover the truth as much as possible, even if it uh, is a little bit awkward or upsetting to people. It is best that we do seek the truth. Now, I do want to get to a couple of comments on the chat line or the chat box, and you can be part of that if you don't want to ring the open line and have your say. As we've had a couple of calls already in the last two days, you can get onto the chat box by simply going to tntradio.live and you can have your say like Ortone has done. Um, he wanted to mention the Epstein files or she. I don't know whether it's a he or she, but Ortone says, um, word is a lot of Democrats are on the Epstein files. Maybe that's what the Dems are really worried about. I bet the phones don't work there either. <laughs> and he actually found that funny. I do love Sydney. I just can't live there, <laughs> says Ortone. I'm with you. I, I thank you very much for that. It's uh, appreciative. Um, I wanted to just give you a little bit of a word of advice about this incredible defamation trial featuring Brees Lerman. Now, for those who've been following this program over the past 12 months, you would know that this relates to, well, the most publicised alleged sexual assault in the history of Parliament House. That is the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins. But the latest on Bruce Lerman's legal fight, and the latest was a defamation trial, is that they've admitted that their client's evidence in the trial against 
the 10 network, was unsatisfactory. But they say it does not mean he raped or had any sexual relations with Brittany Higgins, nor that he is a compulsive liar. Um, this came in submission summarising each party's case. So I have a feeling that Bruce Lerman probably thinks that he could have done a little bit better in the witness box, but I wonder how it will turn out. We'll probably get a result on that in the next couple of weeks and we'll bring it uh, bring it to you right here on the program. Dean Macken is coming up next. I've got it right this time. That is the end of my show today. But I'll be back on Monday and I look forward to your company then when we return to TNT. This is Chris Smith. Have a great weekend.